So I have posted the speaker list on the course website. So if you are registered for the course, you should have um, gotten notice yesterday that I posted that. And the, um, and the assignment for the course. So if you have any questions about that, take a look at the website. Um, are there any questions before I get started? Okay, great. Um, well, some of you have asked me about the, the sign-up list, and this, the, the roster that's going around is just from the, uh, before, before classes started. So not all of you are on there because you might have registered after um, I downloaded the list. But next week, I'll have an update list. Okay. Um, today we have uh, a treat. We have Drew Getting uh, joining us today. Um, Drew is the principal and founder of the Restoration Design Group. It's a, a private company in the Bay Area, uh, or otherwise known as RDG. And um, Drew's background is he has a couple of undergraduate degrees, one in natural resource, natural resources, and the other in plant ecology, both from the University of Massachusetts. Um, I met Drew at UC Davis when he was a master's student in the community development um, group, and he was also pursuing a PSLA uh, in landscape architecture, and that's where I got to meet Drew. Um, so he was here from 2000 to 2002, but didn't quite finish those degrees, but um, I think he was short just one course on, on um, the PSLA, and I'm going to try and pressure him into uh, uh, finish. <laughs> uh, after uh, his UCD work, um, he was working a little bit with various nonprofits, the California Conservation Corps. Um, he started working with Ann Riley, um, the person who was really the principal uh, uh, professional who, who introduced the world to the idea of an Urban Creeks Council. He invented it and uh, created basically the first Urban Creeks Council in, in Berkeley. And that spread like fire across the country and now around the world. Um, these things are everywhere. And um, so Drew has really been working from the, from the very get-go with some of the best people on this idea of promoting uh, and uh, this idea of daylighting creeks that out of their pipes underground and bring them up to the surface. Um, he's going to give us a, a really interesting talk about Wildcat uh, Creek. And without further ado, as Steve mentioned, I actually never finished my landscape architecture degree, and uh, so I'm probably one of the few owners of a landscape architecture firm that's not a landscape architect. But uh, I'm, I'm very good at getting uh, talented people to come together and work collaboratively. So I have a number of really fantastic landscape architects that's been uh, why I think our firm has been, been quite successful in this field. Um, yeah, one of the things, I, I came out to the West Coast um, about 20 years ago, and uh, sort of by accident, I, I became a Whitewater River guy. My sister had signed me up, and I thought she was signing me up to go on a, just a river trip, and it turned out I was going to guide school, and so the next week I found myself in this guide school, and I'd never gone asking before, and, uh, but uh, absolutely just fell in love with it. I fell in love with rivers, really, at that point. I'd done some healing as a kid and stuff, but, but just uh, really, um, I think that experience of being in the water, and then having had the opportunity to uh, worked with the Conservation Corps where I, I got involved in some stream restoration projects in very early ones. And, uh, and that got me very excited about it. And I think also having read Cadillac Desert and I was driving across the country, it all sort of came together for me that this is, 
kind of metropolitan And um, so um, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity, as you mentioned, to work with Ann Riley, um, who's really a pioneer in this field. And um, it's interesting, I, I, I put in the title of the emerging field of stream restoration, and I, I was sort of going to ask Steve, I was like, do you think it's still emerging, or is it, <laughs> is it here now? And, I mean, back when I, I first started this, I remember I had a, a, an engineer, a flood control engineer, um, uh, tell me that this is voodoo science and he didn't wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, I had another flood control engineer walk out of a meeting one time and said, I will never have willow planted in my flood control channels. And you know, that was the sentiment. It, it was that, you know, this stream restoration stuff is just, it doesn't work, it's, it's not gonna happen. And, and really, the, to Ann Riley's credit, uh, she had the foresight to realize that you could create some working examples, whether they're really small, one block reaches of streams that had been channelized or underground, and bring those back to a natural stream, um, you would, could prove that they actually do work. And uh, I think it, it really um, makes you really start to realize that streams, natural streams, um, have a, an amazing ability to function at all sorts of different water levels. Huge storm events, small storm events, they can transport sediment, um, and then they provide all sorts of benefits, providing water quality benefits by, by uh, purifying water, by providing shade, by providing complexity, which habitat. And so they're really a, a, an amazing functioning system that I think we tend to look at and see in this sort of very static way of being like, oh, that's a, that's a creek, and you know, there it is, just like, that's a boulder, or, you know, that's a house. But to really think about creeks is to start to think about them in motion over time. And um, that's what I think is also really exciting. So uh, enough of that. Um, I um, wanted to do two things today. One, uh, give an overview of a restoration project we did recently. Uh, I think it's kind of a, an exciting one. Uh, it's, it's, it's rich visually. Uh, but also then to talk a little bit about the role that landscape architects have played. Uh, it is really the, the perfect profession to do stream restoration, particularly urban stream restoration. So um, after I kind of give an overview of this project, um, we'll dive in a little bit to the role of landscape architects of items. Um, so Steve, I just did a little question. Okay, so um, okay. So um, anybody drive uh, IE to San Francisco, you're gonna be um, this road right here. This is the freeway. Um, some railroad tracks here. This is Davis Park where this project takes place. And give you a little better view here. Uh, there's two streams that come together here. This one is San Pablo that flows out of uh, San Pablo Reservoir, and this is Wildcat Creek. Um, both uh, streams. Oh, sorry. More spacing. Fewer people are here. Can you still see? No. Um, uh, come together at a very close spot in the city of San Pablo, which is almost entirely uh, surrounded by the city of Richmond. Um, this is a view from Wildcat Canyon in the upper watershed, uh, looking towards San Francisco Bay, and that's uh, Mount Tampa. Um, lower watershed, um, very typical. Um, what's the biggest issue with urbanization in streams? Anybody know? Runoff, right? Rapid runoff, lack of uh, ability for the water to sink into the ground, uh, increases flooding, um, all sorts of uh, issues with it. So lots of that. Uh, look at Wildcat Creek. About two thirds of it is uh, controlled by East Bay Regional Park District. Um, the lower portion is uh, City of San Pablo and unincorporated North Bridgeman. Uh, it's about a 2,000 foot elevation change. 
Anybody point out where the creek is? It's yeah, yeah. I think you, you think you're getting it. this right here. So this aerial photograph, uh, that's the culvert that Wildcat Creek is contained. This is the outfall, very attractive. Uh, here's the culvert inlet, um, and uh, you can see here this is a little charred. Uh, not long before this photo was taken, somebody drove a car into the culvert and set it on fire. <laughs> Uh, San Pablo's uh, uh, lower income community, I think 80% of the community has a family income of less than $50,000 annually. Um, and vandalism uh, is an issue. Uh, the police department was really behind this project. They saw this culvert as a real problem. And so they were, they were really excited to hear that the city was interested in, in taking the creek out of the culvert. Um, looking at the uh, stream up, um, Upstream of the park, uh, very typical for an stream, uh, kind of a potpourri of uh, bank stabilization methods, including rock, sap creek, uh, invasive species. Um, there's actually decent flow here. Um, there's another shot of Davis Park, um, Albert. Uh, Davis Park had a couple of uh, really popular items. Uh, one was the Little League Field, heavily used, uh, and the trail network. Um, so this park is con contained really in a residential community, so it actually got quite a bit of use. Um, so just a little bit about the planning for this project. Uh, it didn't come about just because the city decided, hey, let's just, you know, daylight, this would be a great project. There's actually a lot of work went into this uh, in preceding years. Uh, the Urban Creeks Council, as Steve had mentioned, um, uh, did some work with the Watershed Council, which is a group that was specifically working on Wildcat and San Pablo Creek issues for about 20 years now, uh, they developed this uh, restoration action plan. What they did is they looked at the creek in its entirety and the watershed and prioritized what should be done in terms of restoration dollars and efforts and, and the timing of them. Um, to look at this plan here, you can see these are the uh, channelized reaches, this section here. Um, I believe this is the federal electrical channel around here. And these represent migration barriers to steelhead and um, trout that exist in the stream. Uh, so uh, as part of this uh, plan, they realized that, uh, or I should say they realized, they determined that the removal of the culvert of Davis Park was one of the highest priorities uh, for restoration in the watershed. Uh, another planning document uh, took place. The city sponsored a uh, 2007 master plan by calendar systems. Uh, landscape architecture firm in the Bay Area. Um, and that plan was really looking at the entirety of the park. Um, the culvert was running something like this. Yes. So the city directed them to look at daylighting the creek, uh, but also looking at you know, improvements to the community center, the ball fields, park, parking, trail systems, you know, looking at its entirety. Um, unfortunately, the uh, original plan here for the stream um, I didn't really take into account um, uh, natural stream function. It was, it was very straight, and I think in this case, the uh, design team was really looking more at how do we get the ball fields in and these other park elements, and they kind of made a straight creek. And the city initially took this plan and started the permitting process with the regulatory agencies, and the water board said, um, great, like that you're daylighting the creek, 
Um, but you really have kind of a straight channel that's going to have to have a lot of rock on it. And it's not a restoration project. And, uh, and that's when, uh, fortunately, uh, their mistake um, brought the project to our office. So we were asked to look at uh, the creek and how we could um, do, just focus on the, the creek and do a restoration. Now, uh, as you can see, there's not a lot of space for it. So that was our, our initial uh, challenge. Um, so let me um, kind of switch gears here. Go back to me. Um, one of the things I was talking about for the creek is uh, what we refer to as structure and function. Um, so for an analogy, think about your house. Um, your house provides structure for you to live in. Um, and that structure is the walls, it's the roof, uh, it's the kitchen, places you can eat. Um, and the function it provides is to keep you warm in the winter, cool in the summer, it keeps the rain off you, uh, allows you to eat meals uh, and survive, right? So that's the structure and function of a house. A stream has structure and function as well. Uh, for a stream, you're looking at structure in terms of uh, the plant community, canopy trees, understory plants, uh, ground covers, uh, branches that fall into a stream and provide complexity and help scour out pools, as well as the rock and the riffles. Um, all of that is part of the structure of that stream. And that structure provides function in terms of um, transporting not only storm flows, uh, low flows during the summer, um, but also sediment. And that's what, if you look at flood control projects that were developed all over this country, uh, the one thing that most of them did not take into account very well is sediment. And if you look at a lot of these conventional flood control channels, they were designed for the 100-year discharge, which has nothing to do with stream function. It's a nice policy number. Um, they don't transport sediment. And then typically, they come in every so many, so many years and have to dredge that sediment out so that it has the capacity again. So it's a stream that's out of equilibrium. It's not transporting that sediment. Um, so project need, get rid of the culvert, but also to restore the structure and function of the creek through that, that reach. So they're not going to have to go in and, and dredge it. It will provide uh, habitat for fish and other species. Um, allow them to migrate through the site. Um, this is a diagram from the um, uh, action plan. Uh, this is distance from the bay. So here's San Francisco Bay, 1.8 miles. Uh, it's a sediment chute, which is at the top of the federal flood control channel. Um, they fish can get through there at certain flows, um, and then Davis Park becomes the first uh, complete barrier. Um, so why, why don't you think fish can get through a culvert? Any ideas? Any suggestions by you? There's no, no wrong answers here. Yeah? Well, if it's really flat, there's no depth for the fish to swim to or grab onto something to jump to the next level. Yeah, that's essentially it. There's, there's not enough depth in the culvert. Uh, fish, when they go upstream, imagine fish, they swim upstream to spawn. Um, they essentially are, are uh, pool hopping. They go from pool to pool, and they often will require those pools to rest before they can get up maybe a section that's a, a longer riffle or a fast moving section, or sometimes even um, a small, um, for lack of better words, like a dam. They can get up and over them, but they need pools at, above them and below them. So when you have a culvert, you have a long section, which during a storm event when maybe they'd want to be migrating, uh, velocities are really fast. And they can't, maybe a short distance they might be able to get up, but not 500 foot long culvert. And there's no depth for pools in it. So that, that culvert, that 500 foot long culvert, is a complete barrier to fish that cannot 
not get upstream enough. Uh, there's a couple other barriers here, uh, San Pablo Avenue, and then uh, anybody's been into um, Tilden Park, very popular regional park in the uh, up from Berkeley. Uh, there's uh, dams on two lakes here, so those are other barriers as well, uh, which they're actually looking at trying to uh, remove. Um, there's a lack of persistent pools in the system as a whole. One of the objectives for the restoration is to um, create pools so during uh, the summer months there's a place for the fish to be able to survive and to have cover, which is important. If they don't have cover, um, they become um, easy pickings for, for birds. Uh, here's what we refer to as the urban stream indicator species. Um, <laughs> trash, uh, you know, shopping cart. I don't know why the shopping carts are always streams. It seems like a lot of effort to get them in. Anyway, so trash has real, been a real problem there. And, uh, the regional park district actually uh, has invested a lot of time and money into looking at Wildcat Creek through their reaches, and they, they realized that um, there is sort of a lack of uh, ownership and understanding uh, of, about the creek, particularly in the urban areas. And this was a quote from um, their, their study that they did a number of years ago. Um, but what they're really realizing is that unless they get people to appreciate the resource, they're not going to take care of it. Right? And that kind of seems pretty logical. Um, so, their goal is to, to sort of reconnect people with creek, have people understand that there actually are fish there that migrate, there's um, steelhead, trout, um, and so it's kind of a, an amazing resource in an area you wouldn't expect to find them. Um, flood control uh, is also an issue. Um, oops, back here. Um, it's kind of interesting. Here's the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Yeah, it's actually just kind of a hundred year slow event. It's creating a dam. So the railroad tracks are actually elevated. This whole area down here was probably tidal marshes. I don't know where that kind of came back to, but certainly not as far out as the bay is now. This is very flat. You see the topographic lines here, and how far apart these are. And as soon as you get up here on 80, you can see the topography really increase. So this was very, very low lying area. Um, it's also um, uh, very poor. This area here is unincorporated North Ridge and one of the um, uh, poor uh, regions in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, some examples, 2005, this is not a particularly huge storm, this is not your 1 in 100 year storm, this is actually fairly frequent type of um, flood impacts that we've uh, seen. Um, did some hydraulic modeling on the, the project, which is um, kind of always a component. Um, one of the things, if you're going to restore a stream, um, you're going to have to prove that you're not going to make flooding worse. Otherwise, the project sponsor is going to be liable for any flood damages. Um, but uh, we also look at hydraulic modeling for some other um, uh, elements of the design process. But the key thing here is that um, by just taking this culvert out, um, you could actually reduce the uh, water surface elevation so the top of the peak of the flood could be a half a foot to one and a half feet lower just by taking this, this culvert out. Um, so here was our design. We got back into this. Um, uh, do you guys remember the calendar plan where the uh, backstop was? It was, over, it was over here in this part of the field. So one of the things that we, we actually stepped away from the creek and thought, well, if we want to improve the creek, we need to give it some more room. So how can we do that? And we immediately went to the ball field and thought, how can we be more creative about uh, siting the field so that we can have more room? And by switching the orientation of the fields, um, we were able to create quite a bit of, bit of space. Um, so here's the calendar um, initial plan. 
and this is what they were providing as a repairing corridor for the creek. And then if you lay that over what we were able to provide, um, they were able to get considerably more space. So here's the alignment, which allowed for much more uh, meander for the creek. And the stream meander is, um, is really important to a, to a stream. Uh, streams, as they, they are moving this water downstream, they're carrying a lot of energy. And I often think of a, a good way to sort of picture how they distribute this energy in a meander pattern is not unlike how a skier is going down a ski hill. You're, you're making these turns and applying and reducing your speed in each one of those turns and distributing that energy evenly as you go downstream uh, or down the hill. And that's like how a stream is essentially distributing its energy um, down down a, a creek corridor. And what it does is on these, these bends, it increases its velocity as it's going around each of these outside curves. And then it has a ripple zone, and then it's scouring out here, and a ripple zone that's scouring out. And by doing that, you're creating those persistent pools, or, or maybe better say, maintaining those, those pools. Um, and then associated with some of that erosion on the bank is often where, naturally, you would see a place where a tree was growing there, and its roots are now being sort of undermined, and that's providing cover for a fish. So having a meander is not just uh, uh, makes a creek look nice, it's very much about that structure and, and function um, for that um, So this is looking at some of the construction documents we've prepared. Um, here's the trail, here's our creek banks, the, the uh, grading is very specific and varies. Uh, here we have, these are root lots, so taking a tree um, that was removed on site, Flipping it around so you have the big root mass that's sticking out and you bury the trunk of the tree uh, into the bank. Uh, this is showing a soil bioengineering system to help stabilize the bank in that location. Um, and then also these constructed uh, ripples and then pool zones associated with it. So the, the design gets very specific um, in terms of the, the, the structural elements we're trying to uh, put back in the stream. Um, this is showing just, uh, the profile uh, where rock is placed for uh, riffle zones, creating pools. So we're looking at, going back to the hydraulic model, and not just worrying about the water service elevations, but also trying to glean um, what we're looking at in terms of velocities uh, and the shear stress that's being applied to the bed. So are we going to be able to move the sediment, uh, keep it out of the pools, have enough velocity, so when the water's shooting down into those pools, it's keeping it scoured out, and not just filling up with sediment. Um, so there's a tendency for streams to actually want to fill up holes. If you ever go out to a beach and you're sitting there in the surf and you dig a nice hole out and then a wave comes in, what happens to your hole? Um, it fills in, it's like it never was there. And streams will do that unless they, they, they have that structure which over many, many years they'll develop on their own, um, but we're trying to replace it in a very, very quick uh, way. Um, all right, so uh, let's see, will it, <laughs> will it work this time? So here's just um, some 3D modeling of the topographic um, grading plan that we've developed for this. Um, again, yeah, it's, it's, it's complex. It's not just a, a simple uh, channel that is cutting the landscape. Um, one of the things I'll point out here, you see there's sort of a bench. Um, that's um, a bit of a floodplain, uh, also kind of associated with a point bar, where you will see a lot of deposition on the inside. And um, when you design streams, uh, you're not looking at that 100-year um, storm event, or 200, or 500, or even 50. You're really looking at a small storm event that happens fairly frequently. 
Uh, it's often referred to as a thankful channel, a dominant discharge. Uh, there's no other terms for it. Uh, but it's really the storm event that has enough energy that it can start to pick up and move sediment, significant quantities of it, but it happens frequently. So almost uh, every you know one and a half to two years is kind of the frequency you're looking at. And so it's that lower storm event is the one that, in that discharge, that amount of water that's associated with it is what we're looking at when we start to design the channel. So we're almost designing the channel from the inside out. We're really looking at that, thinking about the meander pattern that's associated with it, uh, the width and the depth um, is a very important factor, um, and getting that right, and then building the banks, and floodplain, trails, and everything out from the stream. So, so, so I think the tendency, and like going back to the, the calendar, I'm not trying to bash the calendar, they're actually a very good firm, but I think their approach was looking at the park from the whole, from the broad picture, and saying, okay, string here, ball goes here, and not starting with the channel and working out. So it's sort of a fundamental difference in approach. Um, this is the survey from 1966, the year I was born, coincidentally, um, when they built Davis Park. So we were able to find an as-built, uh, as well, actually, the survey before the design drawings. And we were able to scale that and then place it back into our design to see how does it match up or we anywhere near what historical conditions are. Um, and so we're actually, we're pretty close. Um, but I'll just point out that that's, um, in some ways, irrelevant. The watershed has changed. Um, a lot of other conditions have changed. The creek before 66 may have been altered somewhat as well. Uh, but it's still an interesting piece to look at and, and it's uh, interesting, worth checking. Um, so it does make you feel good at least you're in the ballpark. <laughs> Um, all right, so construction. This is the, the fun part um, for some, although working with contractors uh, is, is really not fun. Um, <laughs> you've got to be sure you don't have any mistakes because they are all about finding change orders. And uh, when you start doing construction management as part of your project, you will find out if you have a mistake very quickly and your client will pay for it dearly. Um, you'll be surprised what just a couple extra boulders or something can cost <laughs> when it's a change order. Um, all right, so I'll just flip through some of the construction stuff. And uh, what, what, how much time do we have to? Uh, 20 minutes. Oh, okay. So um, I'll go for like another 10, and then we have like 10 minutes for some questions. Um, all right, so here again is uh, aerial photographs. Um, there's the culvert being unearthed. Um, this was about a $2.5 million project, I think. Um, here's the stream getting laid out now, and the rough grade again. So again, that was about 500 foot in a uh, linear distance, and I think we created about 600 feet of a new channel. And then ball field is back, new vegetation is going in, and this is in April. So this is after the project's gone through uh, some storm events, so it's actually starting to become naturalized. And you can see how the, the sediment is being moved around. Here's point bars are getting um, filled. There's a gravel, or a, a ripple pool uh, here, there's a pool here, a pool down here. Um, but it's still, it's still very early. It's very, very immature for the creek at this point. Um, so here's some, here's some kind of fun photographs of destruction. Um, one of the big questions of this project is, what do you do with all this concrete? It's expensive to get rid of. Um, we actually um, left a lot of it. Um, there's all the rebar being separated. Uh, a lot of the concrete is back into the old uh, culvert spot. Again, to make sure that the drainage was, was an important consideration so that we didn't um, have problems with water in there. 
but it saved a lot of money by being able to actually just you know, leave the concrete behind. And this is the new channel uh, being graded. Uh, a lot of um, time by our firm on site while we were grading this, and we're going back to the complexity of the grading plan for the creek. Um, these guys are kind of straight line if, if you let them. So you got to really be, be on top of it and, and make sure and double check it if they're grading is, is right. And if they make a mistake and you don't catch it and moving on, it's very hard to get a contractor to go back and fix things. So I'll point out here's the roof. Um, I'm sorry. So here's the riffles. This is rock that's placed in here. So then it's coming down at a steeper slope. This is one of the pools we're trying to create. These are root wads that have the trunk that goes back into the bank. Uh, this is a soil bioengineering system. Are you pretty familiar with soil bioengineering? How many people have heard that term? Okay, so about engineering, it's, uh, that's, that was my first experience in, in urban stream restoration, and I, it's one of the things that I got really fascinated by. Um, I was uh, working with the Conservation Corps, and uh, Ann Riley had this project where you're going out to this riprap stream bank and jamming willow sticks into the bank, and I thought it was the stupidest idea I'd ever seen, and it was very difficult to get these willow posts into the riprap. Uh, but I was absolutely amazed when I came back a year later and Willow was just growing out of that rock and providing, in a very difficult condition, uh, some really important habitat and shade on the stream. So soil bioengineering essentially is uh, using live cuttings, primarily of willow, there's some other species like dogwood uh, that will work as well, um, but willow is really great for it. Um, and essentially you're mimicking um, a natural process uh, to revegetate a bank and to provide some immediate stabilization benefits. Um, naturally, if you had a stream that had a big flood, or maybe there was a landslide, or could have been a fire, or maybe a pest infestation or something, and, and the vegetation got wiped out, um, you would find that there would be what are referred to as pioneering species that would come in and recolonize that bank. Uh, willow is, is one of these pioneering species. It will grow from cutting. So in a natural system, if, if that, that bank failed and uh, some willow trees got washed downstream, the branches and sticks and trunk that got left behind in that bank would suddenly put down roots and start growing up shoots and grow on that bank again. So they would restabilize that bank naturally. That was that would just happen naturally. And then once they created the condition, other plants could then establish on that bank, and eventually um, you would have a second order, third order climatic species take over. So you have this process, but the pioneering species are really important. So what we're doing in soil bioengineering is mimicking that process. And we're taking sometimes uh, just very long uh, poles of willow and driving them into the ground. So we're providing like a, a pole or a long stake. Uh, we use uh, coir fabric, which is 100% biodegradable in association with that, that hold the fines in. And in this system right here, we essentially have a lasagna kind of system uh, um, where we have um, we're rebuilding the bank. So in that case, most of this is was is a cut cut bank, right? This is all underground. This is excavated and cut. Um, you know, geotechnical engineers can say, "Great, cut banks. We like those. Um, two to one slope. Great. Steeper than that. We want to talk about it. But if you have to fill a bank, that's when geotechnical engineers get, get nervous. So what we we had to fill the bank here and excavate it out in order to get the trunks in for the root ones. 
so in this case, we had to rebuild that bank. And we rebuild it in lifts and placing the coir in there and then laying willow um, uh, cuttings, brush, uh, and then doing another lift, more brush, another lift. Um, and so that will provide a, a lot of root structure very quickly that will grow into the bank. Um, and then it also provides a benefit by all those sticks sticking out on the, on the surface of the slope has the benefit of reducing the velocity on that bank. So if you have a big storm event and the water's flowing along there, those sticks are actually going to just reduce the velocity enough along that bank that it'll prevent it from being scoured out. So it's got that immediate benefit and a long-term benefit um, of stabilization and then the big benefit of reestablishing that native plant structure. Um, so here's the ball field going in. Uh, we have irrigation system. Irrigation is the piece that I absolutely hate. Um, it's very, uh, there's no easy solution for irrigation. I mean, ideally, you have drip system because you use the least amount of water, uh, but they're very fragile. And in a place like this, we have a lot of kids going down in the creek. They broken very easily. Um, if you do spray irrigation, that's uh, what we tend to be leaning towards now. Um, you're also watering the weeds, but you don't want to water. So uh, there's no, you know, everybody wants to figure out the world's great irrigation system for restoration. I'd love to see it. But anyway, you have to do it for establishment. So usually we're running the irrigation system for the first two summers to make sure all the plants get established. And after that, native plants are going to do pretty well on their own if they're in the right, right location. Uh, new ball field. And then here's some pictures just from the same, same location. So you can watch the trees in the back. You can kind of see how this is pretty well lined up. Uh, I should also point out, so here we have, you see the willow trying to grow, those lips in there. Uh, we do have container plants for species that won't grow from cuttings. Uh, these are willow cuttings right about that bankful elevation. Uh, one of the things about bankful is that you'll find in a natural stream, if you go ahead and identify in the field, you're not going to find plants growing below that. So you don't really want to put our vegetation in below that. But right at that line is where you're going to have the best benefit for root structure. Um, is the elevation of the path on the right higher than the ball field? Yeah, uh, good, good ICs. Uh, that's done for a reason. So the yes. ball field is actually part of the flood control plan, and I, I should have pointed that out. Um, so in a really high event, uh, the ball field can store flood waters. Um, so this is, uh, I, I wouldn't call this a levee, but essentially it's sort of functioning like that. You have houses right behind here. Um, so that is a higher elevation. Um, and although I don't think this was raised at all on the right, the ball field elevation was uh, specifically designed a little bit lower elevation to provide that, that additional storage. By the way, if anybody has any questions, just uh, please uh, throw up your hand and call them. Um, so I think you see after some storm events, the channel started to naturalize, it's actually looking like a creek. In a little bit more. We actually, I think it was at the, this is summer 2012, so this was the first winter. We actually had a pretty good storm event. Um, and uh, most of the container plants, the soil bioengineering survived very well, um, and shrubs, most of our shrubs survived. It was really the small species that, that didn't do so well. We lost probably about two thirds of those. Um, so, one of the, it's, it's actually kind of a challenge related to the way grant programs are set up. You have to set, spend all your money within you know, about a three-year period. 
Uh, ideally, it would be better to put in the initial um, vegetation, like the soil biomes during the trees and shrubs, and then a year later, two years later, come in and keep adding um, some of the other species that you want to see there. But uh, the, grant from, the grant programs uh, just don't work that way. So it's, it's kind of unfortunate. Uh, maintenance is also a real challenge. Grant programs don't want to pay for maintenance. And the city of San Pablo doesn't have a, a huge maintenance budget. Um, so uh, another element of these projects uh, is monitoring work. So when you first apply for your permits, um, you will uh, spend a lot of time with the regulatory agencies, particularly the water board, who will you know, go over your plans and will want to see changes and all sorts of things. And it's kind of like a bit of a negotiation. Um, and eventually you'll get a permit. But part of that permit says that <coughs> um, for uh, five years you have to monitor the channel. So every year going out and surveying the channel to see if it is indeed functioning the way that you said your project would. Um, and then uh, typically five to sometimes ten years you have to monitor the vegetation. And so there's success criteria for the vegetation. Uh, typically, we want to see about 75-80% survival of the plants that you plant. And if you don't hit that in your annual monitoring reports, reports you're going to have to go back and then add vegetation to get those numbers numbers up. So really, the right regulatory agencies are saying, you know, we want to be assured we're going to do this project that it's going to meet some basic uh, criteria for success, and it's a good thing. Um, although I think they never read the monitoring reports. <laughs> Um, so here we are looking at it after the first winter and it's starting to come back. Um, invasive species is a huge problem. Um, uh, again, you know, a lot of communities like Berkeley don't allow for any uh, herbicides to be used. Um, whether, I'm not sure we want to use them or not, but it would be one way to at least clear out the, the um, invasive seed stock. Um, so it really requires um, a lot of uh, weeding in the first uh, couple of years in particular. Uh, until the other plants get established. And as Steve was mentioning, uh, Ann Riley helped create the Urban Creeks Council, and it's really spawned all sorts of friends of groups for streams. And, and they've been instrumental in really taking on that role of, of caring for the, the creeks, especially that first couple of years when the uh, intense need for <coughs> invasive removal was, was most needed. Um, park, I think, was successful. One of the elements that we really didn't do much here was interpretive components. Vandalism is a huge problem um, in this community. Uh, I don't have any pictures of it. There was stuff put into the concrete and things that were less of a sign-based interpretation and more stuff that's sort of embedded into the, to the park. Um, and uh, uh, Little League Field was very successful. We were happy with that upgrade. All right, so. Um, I've kind of hit on this, and we've got um, a few minutes yet, but I thought I'd kind of uh, throw it out to you as I've gone through this project and hear a little bit about what you guys think the role of landscape architects in this project. Um, any suggestions, any ideas? Visualizing. Visualizing, all right. I have yeah. a question before yeah. I wait until later. If something is unsuccessful, um, and it's like a few years later and it has something you like realized through monitoring that something was unsuccessful and needs to be like completely changed or whatever, then like who pays for that? Because it would be after the grant period and yeah. like, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, uh, the city is really on the hook. So when the city uh, goes into an agreement with like the state for a grant, 
Um, they're essentially saying that they're going to have ownership for this, I think 25 years is what the agreement is with the state resources agency. So if it really went south and there was a real problem with it, the city would have to come up with some funds to go in and try to, to rectify the situation. Um, so the cities are, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of on the hook once they take these on. Um, but anyway, so where, where do we see landscape architects involved in this project? Grading. What? Grading. Grading and doing a grading plan. Um, so the contractors did the grading. Yeah. Good. Solving and fixing the outdoor environments problems that architects created. Okay. So creating creating the plan, creating a restoration plan. Yeah, definitely. Uh, landscape architects are very involved in that. Do you have a suggestion? Uh, other ideas? Yeah. Healing the natural processes that occur in streams. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what else? What are the rules of the day? Okay, yeah, yeah. Recognizing the problem, suggestion. Other more maybe specific sort of tasks, things that, that occur on these projects. Figuring out how to reconcile the social needs of the park with okay. the environmental. Needs. I really I like that, and that's kind of going back to my sort of main point why I think landscape architects are sort of the, the critical profession for this kind of work. Um, all right, what about calendar associates? What did they do? They did the master plan, right? Okay. Um, any other ideas? What else did we do? What about the ball fields? That was all landscape architecture. Looking at the ball fields, how do we make the ball fields work in a smaller space? Um, other ideas? All right, I'll go to my next slide. I, I pull it out, and this is not meant to be a comprehensive uh, evaluation, but I just went through and listened. It's like, well, where, where did landscape architects play a role in this project? Uh, really throughout master planning, we talked about the project development, sort of conceptualizing the plan, helping to write the grant, which is also about identifying multiple objectives. So yeah, we can do stream restoration. We can also do a better ball field. We can do interpretation. We can help people take appreciate the creek. You know, how do you, how do you think about this whole thing in totality? Um, project management is crucial, um, and the landscape architect. Uh, Bob Burke on our office managed that, which meant managing a whole bunch of other professionals, bringing them together, dealing with uh, scheduling, budgets, all that stuff. Um, the basic design elements, I mean, this is what I think most people think of landscape architecture. We're going to design the park. Um, trail uh, was important, designing the bridge, um, which also meant collaborating with the structural engineer and geotechnical engineer. Uh, they mentioned the ball fields. The food and geomorphology, that's a big word for stream. Uh, uh, how streams function and, and stream design. Uh, we're probably an unusual landscape architecture firm in that we have that kind of capability. But uh, I put that on there because I think it's important for landscape architects today to have at least a basic understanding of how stream processes work because you're going to interact with streams. And maybe you're not going to do the stream design, but you need to, I think, have a good understanding of what it goes into stream design so that it can interface with the rest of the park design. Um, with the stream design, the natural meander of the stream, at least for the initial part of it, the soil, the soil bioengineering and stuff, that'll reinforce the banks and stuff, but over time, you know, just the natural processes of that meander, eventually you're dealing with a very limited space in an urban area. Um, what's the concern with that as the meander increases, as it starts getting closer and cutting into the urban area outside of the area that has been set aside for the street. Yeah, well that's a good point. If, if you've got your meander, we've heard of the meander belt. So um, streams actually go like that, that creek um, probably will keep that level of um, meander, that width of meander. 
the, the meanders actually migrate um, up or downstream, um, not always laterally. Uh, where you see really big meandering streams, like you look at a map of the Lower Mississippi River, then you see these giant meanders. And what happens is that streams, when they get into really low slopes, increase their meanders as a way to keep the smaller sediment um, in suspension, to keep them moving. Um, as you go in the upper watershed, where it's steeper, you see streams that are much more straight. And so really part of that, that meander design was thinking about, well, where are we? What kind of slopes do we have? Um, and what do we expect for that meander to be? So <coughs> it's a good point, and it doesn't mean that you can't have streams that will start to meander and cause erosion towards something. You would have to address it, maybe placing some rock in a place where, where you can't have it move in a direction. Um, so some of that. And that goes into the monitoring. You can follow that and see what would happen. That, that's a great question. Uh, how does the effect change uh, up and downstream from the project uh, before and after the project? So did, how did this project affect the upstream reaches or downstream reaches? Right, like like the flow before it was measured in, in like this, and how did it change afterwards? Not, not much change up or downstream. It, uh, it, it's pretty much, up, I mean, I don't want to say it's happened in isolation, but uh, we haven't seen any erosion or really change in terms of flows upstream or downstream. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, let me just finish this list real quick. Uh, uh, so fluid geomorphology, you're talking about stream res restoration component. Uh, regulatory compliance, uh, that was all done by our landscapes, landscape projects. Yeah, right. Uh, community outreach is really key. Somebody was mentioning that. Um, and, and that goes back to that regional parks report where they realized you know, people just have a lack of understanding of, of the resource. And uh, this project can, can be a catalyst for, for really increasing that understanding. Uh, interpretation is always a, a component. Um, and uh, soil boundary vegetation, we talked about. Uh, the construction drawings, you guys all get very familiar with if you're not already. Uh, construction management um, is really the key piece where you're making sure that it's getting built to what was designed and then uh, the monitoring work. Um, so uh, last couple of things here. I, you know, again, I, I think what's really important, one of the takeaways here is that stream restoration is very interdisciplinary. And even though my staff has sort of a landscape architecture um, uh, focus in our work, um, a lot of projects might be led by uh, these kind of projects might be led by a civil engineer or others, but typically uh, most of the projects we work on have these professions associated with them. And so, again, going back and thinking about well, who's going to be at the center of this? Somebody's got to pull this all together and ultimately create some drawings that are going to say you're either digging or you're placing something or you're putting rock in or you're putting plants in or you're cutting something out. I mean, there's only so many levers you can ultimately pull. So what are those levers? How do you get informed in terms of how to pull those levers and where? And, and bringing that all together from all these professions is, is I think, uh, the ideal profession for the landscape architect. Um, so I just think it's important to keep in mind, you know, these, they're complex projects. And, and even, even simple, small park projects are, are not so simple. There's, there's always other professions that have to get brought in and other uh, city departments or city engineers uh, you've got to be able to work with other people and bring information together and reconcile uh, differences of opinion and, and make it work. So that's that's a real challenge. But uh, again, I think the landscape architect is, is really the best trained to do it. So I, this is actually on a different project, but I, it's very cute. So again, this idea of um, 
not only are we doing environmental science, but we're bringing that environmental science and uh, bringing that connection back to people and communities. And, and that's really critical because <laughs> Thank you. Any uh, questions?